1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Hannah Marcus, Assistant Professor in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to talk about her 2020 University of Chicago release, Forbidden Knowledge, Medicine, Science, and Censorship in Early Modern Italy. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thanks so much. Oh, thanks for joining me. How are you today? All right. We've
2: got good snow outside and uh, we'll see if there's more on the way. Oh,
1: um, I miss that so much about living in North America. I miss snow um, and some individuals. Mostly that's it. uh, (laughs) So it's been a wild ride the past year. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a wild ride everywhere. So you are teaching this semester?
2: I am, yeah. It's wonderful. I've got a great group of graduate students, a nice group of first-year undergraduates. It's a it's such a privilege to get to talk about the ideas that are interesting to me with such a smart group of people on a
1: regular basis that is wonderful it really is rewarding are you face to face
2: no no it's all on zoom so i spent my whole um world (laughs) in in my in my home office
1: yep i understand (laughs) i fully understand that all right well let's uh let's jump into our discussion of your book all right. So the first thing I want to do is place this in your trajectory, your intellectual journey. And this book obviously comes out of your dissertation. So let's go back a bit. Can you tell me how you became interested in censorship and intellectual history, Renaissance, Italy? I mean, like, How did you get here?
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's always it's an interesting story and it depends how far back we're you know, historians were good at self-narrativization, so I can um, start this story in multiple places. But I think maybe I'll start with the beginning of graduate school, which is that I'd come in, I knew that I wanted to study Italian history, I knew I was really interested in the history of the book and the history of material text. I'd studied at Penn before going to Stanford, and at Penn they've got absolutely fantastic program in book history. Um, I'd worked in the Special Collections Library, which was really fun. Um So I love getting my hands on books and old books. And I was really interested in the history of religion. I was interested in how the Reformation hit Italy, because we think of Italy as like just Catholic. Um, But it turns out there's lots of interesting stuff going on. Um, And so when I started graduate school, I was like interested in these swirling questions about science and the Renaissance and the Reformation and books as material objects. And... It sort of coalesced somewhat naturally around censorship, around book censorship and the censorship in particular of scientific and medical books. And so then when I started graduate school, somewhat serendipitously began, I started graduate school the same year that Ugo Baldini and Lean Spruit published a big collection of primary sources, like four volumes of primary sources um, of like from the Roman inquisition archives that had just opened um, about 10 years earlier. Um, and, and this collection of sources was about science and so it's about science in the Roman inquisition. And so I started graduate school with this incredible new like set of edited documents that I was able to start like thinking into the archives right away and trying to piece together what I thought some of the important themes were. So this whole book started as a seminar paper, um, in my first year of graduate school, building on sources that were edited at that point.
1: Oh, wow. That's uh, serendipitous. And how nice to have something you did in graduate school matter. Um, <laughs> I loved graduate school. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there, was, there were moments, definitely moments when I loved it. Um, and, you know, you remember thinking, like, this is what being a professor will be like. I'll just be sitting around with smart people talking about smart things.
2: It's, um no, I mean like there's there's a lot of logistics, of course, but i but it's really it is about it's about books and it's about ideas and it's about how ideas matter in the present, um what they were in the past and how they matter in the present and it continues to be incredibly invigorating for me so I've, i' i don't know I feel really lucky
1: um, that is wonderful that's exactly how it should be um, and what you're it's it's what you're doing is really um you know it's timely as well which is is fantastic so um so um what's kind of the historiographical hole you saw that you were trying to fill
2: yeah so i with this book again like the this this collection of sources had just been published right so this is in 1998 the um Archives of the Roman Inquisition were opened to scholars sort of publicly for the first time and so um, this was when I when I went into the archives to begin doing this work in 2013 fourteen the archive had been open for like a while but not forever so this was sort of a new sort of a new set of sources that lots of scholars were working through together and um, and I became very interested in what the sort of longer story of censorship looked like in Italy. That is that there's a story about like the censorship of Luther, certainly. And then there's a story about Galileo, right? The drama of Galileo. Um, But there's a lot in between that. And what I was seeing was that the sort of ideas, the way and the processes that were in play with the condemnation of Copernicus or the Copernican heliocentrism and then Galileo's work um really came out of a much longer period of, of like negotiation and working out how censorship could um uh how, how censorship would function um because censorship in Italy gets really formalized after 1559 and so I was interested you know there's like a bunch of different histori- historiographies going on folks might be familiar with um Carlo Ginsberg's the cheese and the worms, right? That there are lots of like heretical um ideas circulating in Italy in this period. And they might be familiar with Paul Grendler's work on censorship in Venice. Um, and you know, like have all of these booksellers like chucking uh <laughs> forbidden books into the canals as they uh, from under their benches as the Inquisitors come over. And um I think one of the things that I became really interested in also is thinking about how censorship affected people who were, who considered themselves to be pious Catholics also. So certainly there's like heterodoxy as part of this story, but I'm also very interested in how censorship and Catholic piety relate to each other um, and and how sort of learned physicians are are managing these constraints on their reading and constraints on their writing um, as they try to go about doing what they think is really important work. (laughs)
1: Important work, um, and then, you know, important for their work and important for their spiritual lives as well, as we'll get into. Um, So let's talk about your sources, because I, you know, I've I've seen some of them, and they're very cool. And I I, just a note, the book is illustrated in uh, quite well. It's got some really neat uh, illustrations. So when you read it, you will love that listeners. So tell us about your sources.
2: Well, so there's a bunch of different sources in this book. I am like an archive Um, enthusiast Um, Mm -hmm. and I am always looking for like new ways to think about what an archive is too, as well. So like, there's lots of letters, letters back and forth between inquisitors and scholars, scholars at each other, trying to figure out how they're going to get books that they shouldn't have working out to get them from students, um, people uh, working with uh, Roman censors and Roman inquisitors, working against them, um, We've got written writings like so. Publications is a story in many ways about a number of texts that are banned in Northern Europe, right? Or that are, they're that from Northern Europe and then banned in Italy. Um, so in some ways, it's a reception history of lots of those books. When we look at how they get used, how they circulate um, in Italy, I look at the books themselves, like so. How a 16th century book that's been prohibited is allowed to then circulate in Italy with what's called expurgations, which are like selective censorship. So I'm looking at passages that are blacked out and cut up and people's names crossed out, their faces crossed out, like the the defacement of books, the creative ways that people do that without making it look like they've defaced a book. I'll leave that as like a little tidbit for you to go figure out um, (laughs) what I mean there. Um, And so I've been thinking about how censored books themselves, expurgated books themselves, we might think of that as an archive of practice, like the practice of reading gets archived there. I've looked at personal papers of physicians who censor books, who go through and do line by line expurgation censorships of books, but then also censor themselves. Um, I've got a big section on reading licenses, which are a cool new source that people, I mean, I guess they aren't totally new. People have known that they exist, but I sort of have done some of the most comprehensive work with them. So um, I've got maybe a database of like 6,000 reading licenses. So these are permissions, um, people petitioning for permission to read a book that is banned. Um, so I've got about 6,000 licenses, each of those with a list of books that they, that people want to read, maybe like 400 of them are from physicians. So then you can start to trace like interest in reading certain kinds of prohibited books over time. And so that's been a fun source. And then I even go into the libraries themselves. So it's like, if you've got a set of expurgations that you have to perform on a book in order to keep it in the 16th and 17th centuries, then you get the license, you take your pen and your blade and and you cut up the book and black things out. Um, so then you've got your license in one hand, your expurgated book in the other, then I'm looking at how those end up in libraries in the uh, 17th century in particular. So like, does it have to live on a shelf of prohibited books with with other prohibited books? Does it get integrated into the library? Does it get integrated into the catalog? Like, How is forbidden knowledge Domesticated and brought back into Italy um, after the Reformation. So those are some of the things that I'm have been following.
1: Um, so I found this the expurgations, and I would like to talk a little bit more about that as part of the story of kind of how you read um, and these reading licenses. To to whom are who to to whom are the those these were the readers seeking permission. Yeah, these are to whom are they writing? I guess
2: absolutely. So, expurgation, maybe we should pause for a second and and I'll backtrack on um, expurgation and then we'll talk about how you get permission. So, expurgation um, is a way of correcting a book of change. Correcting is the word that Catholics use at the time, right? Correcting, censoring a book um, in a way that you can keep it circulating. And uh, so not everything is allowed to be expurgated, right? And we, we, I might break down a little bit that censorship happens at many stages of a book's life um, in this period. So there's censorship before a book is printed, right? That's pre-publication censorship. So I write a book, I send it off to the censors, they look at it, make sure it's okay, Um tell me what parts need to be removed, and then it can be printed. That's not the kind of censorship I'm dealing with here. The kind of censorship that I'm dealing with is actually books that are printed outside of Italian jurisdictions. So these are books that are being printed in in Switzerland, in Germany, in France. And then they come into Italy, doctors buy them in Italy, And then they have to be corrected. So there's no opportunity in Italy to do pre-publication censorship of these books. It's all post-publication. So then they've got their hands on it and they're like, well, okay, so this is by an author who's forbidden. How then do we correct? (laughs) How then do we expurgate, censor this book in order to get rid of the bad parts and keep the good ones, right? How how do we make it
1: allowable? So, what might be expurgated? Like, what what would be an example of something that's not it's not okay for for the public? Well,
2: one of the things that's really tricky about medicine that I think is really important is that we tend to think about censorship of, scientific, as, of science as being primarily about ideas, right? So, like heliocentrism not allowed, um, and One of the things that's sort of paradoxical that I'm looking at in my book is that it starts out, the censorship of medicine in particular, really starts out as a story about people rather than people's ideas. So in the 1559 Pauline Index of Prohibited Books, there are all of these physicians, Leonhard Fuchs, Conrad Gessner, um, who are banned because they are Protestant, (laughs) because Fuchs is a Lutheran, because Gessner is Zwingli's godson and therefore like a really bad heretic um, so these books are being censored first and foremost because they're written by non-Catholics um, so that's that's where the story starts and then after that physicians, readers, communities in Italy are writing to their inquisitors and saying like, we can't medicate without b- these books. We need these books. These b- books are important and useful uh, to Catholic society and we need them. So then there's got to come, they've got to come up with this compromise and expurgation becomes that compromise where people can go through and selectively remove parts of the books in order to make them available. So that's just, I need us to realize that we're starting with people and moving to the line-by-line reading of ideas. And so one of the things that's really bizarre about this is that many of the ideas in these books, like Leonhard Fuchs's On the History of Plants, beautiful book. Nobody wants to burn it. It's extremely expensive. (laughs) Um, uh, It's a beautiful book. And it's about plants, right? Like I can imagine that Leonhard Fuchs saw his descriptions of plants as fundamentally... Lutheran, like Sachiko Kusakawa has argued that, but Catholic censors didn't see it as fundamentally Lutheran. They saw it as fundamentally a book of plants. Like that was it. The content, as far as most Catholic censors are concerned, is just fine. Right. And it's the author that's the problem. So in the case of Landhart Fuchs, for example, we're seeing just like lots of crossing out of his name, wherever it appears, crossing out of sometimes his face where it appears. Um, Removal of preliminary materials like dedicatory letters to Protestant princes. That's got to go. Praise of Protestants. Citations of um, versions of the Bible that are not the Latin Vulgate. um, Mentions of other heretics like Erasmus, for example. So some of this is very sort of superficial to the medical content. And I think that that's kind of an interesting issue in and of itself. And one of the ways that I explore that this is as a process of damnatio memoriae, which is like a damnation of memory, damnation to memory. So an idea, the idea that the removal of these names isn't about forgetting them, it's about changing the way so that readers approach the books, um, that readers uh, approach the content inside with a wariness, with an awareness of... Um, the potentially problematic content, even if on the whole Roman censors have decided that like Landhart Fuchs's book of plants is really a book of plants. So, um, th- that's, that's one set of issues. Then there's another set of issues, which is sort of more content laden. And that's, I think, um, those center around things like, um, uh, Demonology, for example, the role of demons in causing illness and especially mental illness, um, how that can be fixed, right, like exorcism versus medicine, um, polemical remarks, and this is, that—that um, uh, that is to say, certain remarks that were sort of okay earlier in the century or in the Middle Ages are no longer okay in, in Counter-Reformation Italy. So, for example, like Amatis Lusitanus. Saying that, who's he's a crypto Jewish physician um, whose works end up banned, but then expurgated. Uh, his account, his medical account of a nun who gets pregnant in a bathtub. He's like, no, it's not really from the semen in the bathwater. That like might have been okay a hundred years earlier, but in the aftermath of the Reformation, that's making fun of the clergy, and that's not going to fly anymore. That's like too. Um, um, too hot an issue. (laughs) Um, so, so there's like a sort of way in which we see sort of what people's contemporary anxieties are and what's sort of like too dangerous. Um, and similarly, there's a sort of big reevaluation of, um, medieval and astrological texts, trying to think about like things that were considered, um, maybe just like Superstitious, but not hugely problematic, that are suddenly again like a little too close to heresy in the wake of the Reformation. Um, and with astrology, sort of the confining astrological practice to, um, to within Catholic realms. So, like, it's not that astrology has to go right, like, astrology is important, astrology is important for navigation, astrology is important for agriculture, astrology is important for medicine. Um, but astrology to tell the future, like of men's deeds, like that's not going to work. Astrology qua Girolamo Cardano making a nativity of Jesus Christ. Like that's really not going to fly. Right. So like there are these, it's, it's interesting. It's just like, it's a massive gray area where people are trying to, um, delineate exactly what kinds of readings can be permissible and what can't. And I think one of the lessons then is, Perhaps unsurprisingly, that everybody reads in different ways, and these Catholic censors are totally aware of that. And they're like, "There's no way that we're ever going to be able to come up with like one reading. <laughs> we, like we all interpret things differently. Um, and yet, there's this impulse from the perspective of the Catholic Church that we might be able to like that it might be possible to tame these books." Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: and for any number of reasons they're, they're 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 necessary so we still need to read them however in this careful way um so they're expert gated um and there are there are things that are available but still not everyone has access to them
2: yeah not everyone has access to them um i think that one of the things that i've been noticing is well it's worth pointing out also about like sort of the stakes that are going on right like the stakes of reading of owning a bunch of books by Martin Luther are really high. Like you might get burned at the stake for that um, or drowned in the Venetian Lagoon. But like having a, co- like a copy of Conrad Gessner's History of Animals, like that's not gonna get you killed. It might get the book taken away and you don't want the book taken away because the book was expensive and you love that book. <laughs> um, so physicians are trying to keep these libraries intact, but the stakes are not life and death. So I just think it's worth sort of laying that out. So then um, the books are circulating in a variety of ways. One, I mean, you can buy them illicitly. They're being snuck across borders with, um, without their title pages. Um, so snuck into customs without title pages. They're being uh, carried across the Alps by people's students. Um, there are lots of ways to get prohibited books. They're also then circulating on a secondhand book market. Um, and one of the things that's quite interesting is thinking about when people have access to the books already. So if people are like, "Your are licensed to have a prohibited book, it says that you can have it to, um, to keep and to read, uh, but you can't go out and buy it. <laughs> um, usually, um, sometimes people are, there's a, an occasional license that allows for that. But for the most part, there's the expectation that people have the ability to access these books already one of the ways that people are accessing prohibited books also is in libraries though so over the course of the 17th century i i follow the case um sort of at the turn of the 17th century a case in the biblioteca ambrosiana in milan um where a reader has permission to read a prohibited book that has been expurgated um and then he goes down he goes and copies things out of it and uh, puts them to heretical ends and there's this case back and forth between the inquisition in rome and like the librarian um And, and, and then Archbishop of Milan, all trying to say like, it's, he couldn't have taken anything, but we've got, we've got the book expurgated. The book is properly corrected. He had, um, he was allowed to come read it in, in the library. But like, again, this issue of like interpretation and use comes up. People are doing, um, people can take a text and put it to all sorts of creative and illicit purposes. Um, And this just keeps circling around this issue of interpretation and intention, Um, And I think that maybe one of the things that the book reveals is the ways that um, many Catholic readers were willing to sort of circumscribe their intention to, like, read piously in order to keep reading these texts. But then there were certainly others who weren't. (laughs) So we might um, we see both of those kinds of characters emerging in the course of my book. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay. so. Uh, I haven't covered this, Like, why someone might want to read a prohibited book, I mean, for medical reasons. Um, is there any kind of cachet in it?
2: Yeah, I think that one of the things that I was able to follow in kind of an interesting way is um, a pair of, well, a physician and his son um, in Lucca, Girolamo and Stefano Colli who petition for reading licenses over the course of um, maybe like a couple decades. So we see their library changing and growing and we see more and more prohibited books added to the collection. Um, So I do think that there's, um, I think a way in which the licensing leads to sort of a canonization of a number of 16th century um, books by Protestant authors or by heterodox authors um, that then become just essential reading um throughout the 17th century in italy it sort of solidifies this group of people that you know that you're going to be able to get permission to read or you suspect you're going to be able to get permission to read and to remind us again that like this is not luther right you can't read calvin right you can't even read galileo galileo becomes one of these people machiavelli these people that are like too hot to touch but there are these physicians that are um in 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 a bit more of a um Ne- nego like negotiable space um and they become i think de- like they they really become integrated into catholic medicine despite the fact that they are prohibited
1: mm, all right um so you spend a good deal of time an entire chapter kind of devoted to Girolamo Rossi and so I think it would be instructive for you to talk about him for our listeners. Who was he and why is he so important for your story?
2: Oh yeah, I'm so glad we get him in. <laughs> Giancarlo Morosi is like one of my favorite characters and i mean, discovering him was really interesting for me and it was, you know, a big turn in the book as the research for the book as well, which is that I so I'd gone to Rome, right? I'd read all of these books, these uh, volumes published by Ugo Baldini and Leeds Bruet about Catholic about the Catholic Church and and modern science. And then I went into that archive, and I was reading, reading, reading. And as I was reading, I kept seeing this name, Girolamo Rossi in Ravenna, and he was writing directly to the Congregation of the Index of Prohibited Books. And that seemed unusual. Usually, people are going through their Inquisitor. They're writing like it's the. It should have been probably the Bishop or the uh, Inquisitor of Faenza who was writing in on his behalf, but instead Brosi's writing directly. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> right. He's writing all these expurgations. Like what is going on with him and why does he feel so like empowered to do this work? Especially since I've been following these like professors in, at the University of Padua who were basically uninterested in helping with the task of censoring books. Then we get this guy out in Ravenna, who's just having his own little personal counter-reformation of medicine. Like what's going on with him? And, and and this was sort of combined with the fact that I was reading every day in the reading room next to professor Baldini. Um, so I, I don't know. I was just thinking like there's, he's done so much. Like I'm not going to, f- find a lot of things that he's never seen before, right? Like when we think about like what our contributions are as a historian, one of the, the contributions is like finding things, or a possible contribution is finding stuff that people haven't really looked at. I was like, I'm never gonna see something that Ugo Baldini hasn't seen in this archive. He's an amazing scholar. Um so then how do I present material differently? How do I present material alongside other kinds of material differently in a way that tells um a story that's my own. And so at about eight months <laughs> in the archives, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit the road. I'm gonna go see what else is out there. And I'd collected a list of sort of potentially interesting collections around the rest of Italy. Um, and one of the ones that had just come to my attention was like, maybe I should check out this Girolamo Rossi guy. So I go to Ravenna. And lo and behold, there's a ton of stuff. He's got a ton of stuff there. He's got tricky but not impossible handwriting so that's good um unfortunately his books his like his library of books don't seem to have survived but there are many like several volumes of his manuscripts including his letters um a few of his own like drafts of his own works um and the librarians and archivists in Ravenna were just absolutely incredibly helpful. So I was able to like start to piece together who this person was. And I mean, he's he's an interesting guy. <laughs> He'd studied, his, he begins as a humanist secretary for his uncle, who's head of the Carmelite order for a while. Um, he's like involved in, it seems like sort of administering of, like farmlands for a... Cardinal uh, in, in the area, so his like correspondence is always reporting on floods in the region. Um, but he's also like a historian, <laughs> so he worked in the he'd worked in the Vatican Library on these trips with his uncle to Rome, and had written a history of Ravenna that is still like widely cited as one of the most in, sort of influential histories of of, of the area. Um, and then he and then he was a phys- became a physician. And so during this counter-reformation moment, when we have all of these scholars who are basically dragging their feet and uninterested in helping with, with censorship, we have this incredibly pious scholar, Girolamo Rossi, living in Ravenna, who's going through and doing just like the painstaking work of doing line-by-line readings of these big texts. I think he censors, he expurgates 16 or 13, excuse me, 13 books, like big books, <laughs> Um going through and picking out the parts that are potentially problematic. And he's quite explicit in explaining why they're problematic too. And he says, he's like, I don't want people to think that I'm taking these things out for no reason. When he, when he pulls out a section, he explains what he thinks is going on. So I thought he was really interesting. You know, I'm like putting two Page's side, I, I've got two things going on with his, um, with his work that I sort of treat in a couple different chapters. One is sort of him bringing him out as, as, a, as a character. Another is um, the uh, his expurgation. So maybe we'll start with him for a second, because that allows us to see self-censorship. And this is one of the things that like we know that in, under any regime of censorship, there are going to be people who are censoring themselves right? People are going to be patrolling what they say. Um, but one of the things about Rossi that's so amazing is that when we have drafts of his texts, we can go through and see how he's, he has expurgated his own works. So I'm able to show him like engaging with drafts of his own work where he goes back and removes praise of Protestants that is no longer seems appropriate to him as he's starting to learn how to read like a censor. And so I think one of the things that he shows us is how censorship changes the reading habits, changes like the mental space for um, individual Catholic readers. So that's one chapter. And then another chapter is taking the expurgations that he and others um, have written and really trying to read through like, so what does he think is a problem here? (laughs) You know, like, can we reconstruct what his idea of um, orthodoxy might look like, based on the ways, um, the kinds of material that he thinks need to be removed from texts because, and, and, you know, it's a little bit futile in some ways because um, of these 13 books that he sends in or expurgations of 13 books, only one really becomes sort of formal Catholic policy. So we see this, the way in which he's like putting in a lot of labor And at the end of the day, it's it's not clear that that labor, it's always sort of second to interpretations in Rome, to choices that are being made in Rome. So at the same time that Roman authorities are looking for people around Italy to lend their expertise in different subject areas to expurgating different kinds of texts, be they um, medical, philosophical, legal, literary, um at the end of the day, the authority lies in Rome. So it's it's interesting having this opportunity to have worked in the archives in Rome and then followed these archival trails out to these like peripheral cities, if you will, a place like Ravenna, and then um sort of remind readers that in terms of um in terms of law, the story ends back in Rome. <laughs> that that's 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 where the decisions are made.
1: Can so I want to note here, um, Just in your process as an historian, if you know, as I think our listeners might be interested in how that works as well. So you have this source that's incredibly important and it's instructive and it's very, it's a wonderful find for you. But I also want to notice or note for other the the other reasons that this matters, like historian craft reasons. He's readable. He's there. No one else has looked at him. Um, They're good archivists. Rovetta has really good food. They're all kinds of it does have good food. Yeah, it's like an unsung hero in Italian cuisine. Um, so there, I think it's interesting to see really the kind of very real world physical things that go into your decision as an historian of like who you're going to spend time with.
2: Yeah, Love. absolutely. And I mean, like, one of the things that I'm really proud of about this book is that I worked in a lot of different yeah, archives and did. libraries. And I mean, that was a strategic choice. I didn't want to be a historian of one italian city which is a totally reasonable and intellectually sound thing to do especially because i mean as many of our readers probably know like italy is many different states so like venice is a totally different state from milan is a totally different state from rome right it's a totally different state from naples right these are different um like political entities, different sets of laws. But I was really interested in the ways that censorship cut across these different spaces. Um, and and so I really wanted to move
1: around. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and, you know, it's also there archives are difficult and they're different to work with languages can be difficult. I mean, at least little linguistic changes, funding structures for you doing your work are different. There's it's, there are a number of reasons that historians tend to focus on a single city. So it's, it's really admirable. Well done you.
2: Thank you. And you know, I had a great grant, um, for this. I I mean, I was supported by a number of grants, but the one that really supported that first year, 2013, 14, um, In Italy, it was from the Council on Library and Information Resources and and Mellon um, Grant, which was really interested in sort of innovative use of archives, Um, you know, like identification of um, archives and interesting use of them in different ways. And so I think that that was something that they really valued in the proposal for my project, but it was like, it was hard too. I mean, I moved around a lot. I think there was a period when, um, I, I called myself senza chiave, Chiavi, right? Like I was, I was without, I was without keys. There was a period when I like wasn't in the same place for more than two weeks over the course of like four months Um and just had my stuff in my backpack and trekked to a new city and looked at some books, looked at some archives. And I mean, it's just, it's so exciting. The Italian archival tradition, library tradition is just, so rich, um it you know, like that's what I love doing. That's the other thing is, I mean, like there are different parts of the the process that resonate for different scholars, and for me, it's getting to be in the archives. I'm suffering right now, <laughs> trapped, trapped, <laughs> I'm trapped in Boston. I'm I spend a lot of my time fantasizing about being back in in archives. I mean, I I worked in an archive. I was really lucky as an undergraduate. I studied abroad in Italy as an undergraduate. And um, and as a, as a funny story, I like to tell that I, uh, the summer, my last, like my final month in, in Bologna, I was sitting in Bologna, my friends were all like headed to the beach and off to Sardinia. And I was in this like unair-conditioned, library just so happy i was like i have found my calling. <laughs> this, this is what i want to be doing i am sweating so much <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're astoundingly uncomfortable right way too hot. Or i have a very special set of gloves that have tips so i can type <laughs> you know, in the company of Calais, that is, um all right so um i think like a really interesting place you you write in your introduction i argued that the effects of ecclesiastical censorship were both material and discursive and i see that coming like so clearly with rossi that there is this the discourse that happens but also just the physical the physical books what we know you know
2: yeah absolutely i just i think that we can't Censorship can't be only about laws; it has to also be about practices. And I mean, both are revealing, right, and and mutually reinforcing. I think that um, one of the arcs that I follow in this book is the ways that people justify their need for prohib- for, for reading prohibited books, and the the term is consistently utility. Um, people are physicians, in particular, are up at arms about the importance of these useful books, of keeping useful books available. And I think that when we've talked about what scientific utility is, we talk about scientific utility as like applied knowledge, but then that's like not the case necessarily with these prohibited medical books, right? Like these are humanist medical texts. These are natural histories. These are books of plants. Like yes, they might have like an immediate applied impact of being able to better understand like medicinal simples, right? like different plants that can be used to make remedies. but also there's just there's this book learning that gets justified as fundamentally useful for Catholic society. and I think that that's like coming out of an interaction with censorship. so that's like one of these discursive issues. But then I think that when you take that censorship, and you understand that whenever somebody is going to be using a book now um if they're doing it legally they've got a license and they're looking at copies that they have either that are already expurgated or that they are expurgating themselves and i think that that changes the ways that people then fundamentally interact with a text that you don't that the useful book is always also marked literally <laughs> as as something that's potentially dangerous and i just i think that this changes um Sort of the mindset that people are bringing, like this is this is what it means to be a Counter Reformation reader, right? This is what it means to be a Catholic reader in the Counter Reformation is to um, sort of deeply take on and and reflect on the divided nature like, of religious belief in this period and the ways that that permeates all realms of knowledge.
1: Sure, and then you have this living document, this physical. Book physical treatise that's an active tool in creating that multivalent intellectual world <clears throat>
2: absolutely and i think that i mean it's always worth saying that like as i'm studying these catholic scholars who are petitioning to read different prohibited books at different times that like not everybody's doing that right my, my book concludes with uh with an epilogue about galileo And, uh, one of the things that we might point out is that Galileo didn't have a reading license to read Copernicus. Right. (laughs) But he was reading Copernicus. We know that this is like an, um, sort of a prime example, but I do want to show in this story that as we've taken Galileo to be the, the story of science versus religion, where religion squashes science. Um, and there's an element of truth to that, of course. Um, but it's also much more complicated. And I think that Galileo is acutely aware of the ways in which reading was circumscribed in this period. He's in Padua at the time that these books are being that the medical books are being censored there and the physicians are resisting and others are doing the work. I think that we need to see Galileo as a counter-reformation reader who understands what it means to have Copernicus expurgated. And who's offended (laughs) by the ways that Catholic expertise um, or that that Catholic censors do not have the expertise that he thinks is important to be able to make choices about astronomical and mathematical texts. I think that we can see in Galileo sort of a a fight (laughs) that we've we've missed or certain valences to the fight. Um, that we've that we've previously overlooked, and that that comes to the fore really strongly if we think about the history of his dialogue, right? So Galileo's famous dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, um, which is published in 1632, and then immediately um, prohibited, and then gets Galileo called before the Inquisition in Rome, and the book gets banned. Well, the book's banned first, and then he gets uh, put under house arrest, right? He has to abjure his belief. I want to point out that the the dialogue started as a refutation to censors, right? To the censor of Copernicus, like the dialogue, this thing that we think of as like Galileo Galileo's masterwork of heliocentrism is originally framed as um, as an attack on the censor, the person who had censored Copernicus. That like his Galileo's personal expertise as a mathematician. Was important, and the ways in which um, this knowledge was um, useful, despite potential um, heterodoxies within it, um, is something that Galileo is quite attuned to as well. So I'm just I'm I'm sort of interested in taking the story of medicine and then applying it within within the context of what is sort of arguably the best known case of the sure. relationship between science and
1: censorship. Yeah, I want. I'm glad that came up, and I, we're largely done to, uh, with this discussion. Like you, you made a great point there, but I love that you include it as an epilogue, which is an interesting choice because you know this is uh, this is arguably one of the most famous scientists in the history of history. Right? <laughs> I mean, so so famous that a beloved sapphic alternative folk duo of the 90s wrote a song for him. Um, <laughs> And you he, it he's such a he and you treat it as kind of a case study, but uh it's it's really well done it's it was a great decision thank you um, you, you know, know, it just seemed to me that one of the and
2: and my decision to do that actually i mean i that wasn't the plan all along um the decision to do that was in part informed by the archives That's as I was reading along about the censorship of medical books, I found the expurgation of Copernicus. Or like the in in the minutes of the congregation of the uh, Index of Prohibited Books, there's the notes about the expurgation of Copernicus, and I knew that it was pu- that those documents were published. Scholars have done this great work; they found this, they would published it. But here it was alongside these medical things that I was interested in. Here it was amidst um, requests for reading licenses, and and so I spent several hours and copied. Them all down, even though again, I knew that they were published somewhere, it just felt important to me that in my notes, in my thinking on this, in an early day, that like the canonical example of Copernicus, of Galileo, was very much integrated into a larger story that included other disciplines, and I think even foregrounded other disciplines. And that other discipline in particular, I think, is
1: medicine. Mm-hmm. All right. Um... So we're coming to the end of our time here, um, and uh, I want to note that um, there's a lot for your work that doesn't specifically talk about authoritarianism or the centralization of power, but it's really nice of it. It does a great job of demonstrating the negotiation, right, that is actually kind of the hallmark of I think the era of reformations. Um, and so let's let's kind of talk about kind of what is the overarching impact of the prohibition, the expurgation, um, you know, the the reintegration of these texts back into the Catholic world. What's the impact on medicine? What's the impact on the intellectual kind of, uh, you know, the zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that the big impact is really something that we see emerging across the whole book, which is that I think the Catholic censorship fundamentally changes not only books, but readers. It changes the ways that readers approach texts. It changes the ways that readers are thinking about texts. I think it makes all texts religious in a way that we don't necessarily intuitively think of. Um, I think that censorship inscribes on, on books the historicity of a, of a period that is fraught by religious war when people are dying for having different religious beliefs. And I just, I think that sometimes I, I, we can, we can study history and say that we're reading books that aren't about religion. And I think one of the things that I, <laughs> that I want to show is that like these texts that are even a text like Leonhard Fuchs's book of plants that even Catholic censors don't think is about religion in the context of censorship and a society and a culture of censorship, it's all about religion. <laughs> um, and that's at the forefront of all of these people's minds. Um, and I think that that's really one of the the big takeaways that I want people um, to to leave this book with is like a a deep sense of the ways that religion permeated the religious conflict permeated the intellectual work. Um, that people are doing in the 16th and 17th centuries.
1: Mm, Nice. Nicely done. All right. Final question. What's next? What are you working on now?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm working on a few different things, of course, (laughs) because I I have many interests. I I write about Galileo, so um, I continue to write about Galileo in a few different ways. I've been writing about uh, plague um, for reasons that are probably fairly straightforward right now my, my own historicity. And, um, and then I'm working on a book on uh, longevity and advanced old age in the Renaissance. So how people think about a old age, um, advanced old age, like people who live to 90, 100, 120, 140, um, which like they they weren't living to 140, but they thought they were right in a period when like life expectancy is closer to to 30. Like how are people conceptualizing this philosophically, religiously, scientifically, medically? Yeah, so that's where that's where I am right now, um, thinking about these sort of related um, related issues about religion and science and the body um, in the long Counter Reformation.
1: All right. Uh, This right. I'm, I'm very interested in this work. Um, and I see that you're doing some, uh, some public history work that you're writing for, uh, well, notably the New York Times, which is, you know, a, an important publication. Um, so I think that I'm, I'm really interested to see what else you do. That'd be fabulous.
2: Thank you so much. All right.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a really wonderful time. It's a pleasure. Really appreciate the invite.